Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Kiki TV Expert event. And I'm so glad that you're here joining me and listening. Today, I'm really pleased to be sitting down with Joe Angelo, and we're going to be talking about organic food, local. He's a seasonal local organic specialist. Joe's career is uniquely rooted in both the East and West Coasts of North America and has been dominated by procuring, selling, trading, and distributing various animal proteins, including salmon, fish, shrimp, beef, as well as pasture, dairy, eggs, chicken, and pork, and local and seasonal produce and small craft food brands. He is passionate about animal proteins as essential nutrients for optimal health and has a strong drive to secure availability and sustainability of their sourcing for our robust future. He is familiar with every aspect of bringing food from the farms, the fisheries, the fields, and the workshops to consumers and has been involved with the organic and fair trade sector for 25 years. Welcome, Joe Angelo. Thank you, Kiki. It's a privilege and an honor to be on your Kiki TV channel and the expert events uh, show. So I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. So we I, all I would like to I'd like to qualify the intro just a little bit just Please. because Go ahead. Um, I've never actually been a real farmer. So um, I, I have I'm very reticent to um, criticize anybody who's a farmer because it's probably one of the most difficult uh, um, career choices careers in the world. And sometimes it's a choice and many times it's not a choice. So um, I just wanted to qualify that because I, if you find me being, quote, diplomatic about how I view farming and farmers, it's because I've never really been a farmer. So uh, it's, I can't speak firsthand about what it means to be a day in, day out farmer. But you do know what it takes to bring the food from the farms. Absolutely. Everything, everything after the farm and even on the farm, I, I know quite a bit about what goes on on farms. Uh, but I, you know, again, as far as getting it um, off the farm and in onto the table, uh, yes, it's been. So I'm, I'm going to start career. a little bit about your background. You actually grew up in one of the most robust farming areas in North America, which is in California in the Sacramento Delta. Uh, is that the bread bat? That's the salad bowl of America or and you also grew up fishing. You became a commercial fisherman while still in high school. You went up to Alaska. So let's hear about growing up around food. Also, your whole family, practically your whole family is in the food business. So there was definitely some um, big food influences for you. Why don't you talk about where you grew up? And I know you also grew up with uh, very close to the communities that were farming and um, and the farm owners and everything. So yeah, let's hear about your food background. Sure, thanks. Um, so yeah, I grew up in the Sacramento River Delta and the whole, I don't know how familiar everybody is with the geography of California, but there's this gigantic valley um, from the top of California all the way down to the bottom of California pretty much um, that is surrounded by the coastal range, mountain range on in the west and the Sierra Nevadas on the east and um, so that 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 valley is one of the most uh, it's one of the bread baskets of the world. Uh, there's uh, more produce um, agriculture products uh, grown in that valley than most countries in the world produce. So it's very 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 active. And when you talk about um, vegetable production, dairy vegetable production, it's it's fruit, obviously, fruit trees, uh, it's very, very prolific. Wine, and all of pop, uh, all Yes, so where I grew up was primarily pears at the time. So pear, pear uh, orchards, all of 75% of the kids I grew up with were either farmers or related to farmers. And uh, we, in our summer jobs, were always on farms. And we, uh, and, it, and it was around, pear agriculture, but also some crops. Like at that time, most of the crops, the grain crops were safflower for oil or wheat for 
uh, human consumption. Those were the primary crops. Now, a lot of that has changed over the last, you know, three decades. It's become, uh, the state is becoming littered with vineyards. So it's becoming, you know, one of the, obviously one of the biggest wine growing, grape and wine growing regions of the world. So uh, California is, and so home to Gallo, which is, Gallo is, is the largest wine company in the world as well. And didn't, um, I think your family had some of their old vines that they brought over from Italy. Some grape vines, I think I've I, heard some of the lore. Mm, I don't yet yeah, possibly, but I don't know about that. You may have heard oh. a story that I haven't. Okay. So, so yeah, um, my father was very passionate about making wine and he had, as a hobbyist, he was an architecture and builder, but his, his hobby was winemaking, so. And olives. Uh, yeah, he, he, he messed with olives as well. So it's a, there's a lot of olives in California. So yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's very Mediterranean. The climate is very Mediterranean. So all those Mediterranean crops are prolific in, uh, in California. Yep. And then talk a little bit about your introduction to fishing, just I guess as a hobby, as a boy's hobby, and how that led to a passion to go to Alaska, where you ended up, you know, the food that we speak about now that everyone talks about as being the most beneficial, healthy, uh, you know, fish and the fish oils is the North Atlantic salmon. And you were there at age 17. In yes, Alaska. I couldn't wait to get to Alaska. I was a hobby farmer or hobby fisherman growing up in the Delta. So, you know, my friends and I would get on our bikes and or get on a little boat and and fish. That we did that a lot. So, uh, fishing as a way of earning income was like a dream come true. And at that time, there was a lot of lore about how to you know make a lot of money fishing in Alaska. So, I made it a point to really explore that and the day that I graduated, the next day I was on a plane to Alaska, Cordova, Alaska, which is the Prince William Sound. And that fishery is uh, the Prince William Sound and Copper River Delta. So, um, and there are five Pacific salmon uh, species. All five are run through that area. And so depending on the type of fishing uh, gear, fishing boats, fishing crews, uh, locations will determine what fish you catch, what type of salmon you catch. So to be clear, a fishery is where the fish naturally gather, or are these somehow created, man-assisted created fisheries? Yeah, so I, I guess I use fisheries as, a, as an industry term. Fisheries is a, is a, a fishery is a, I guess, geographical location for particular types of fish. Um, you would call that a fishery. So okay. um, this this zone in Alaska, the Prince William Sound and the, uh, and the Copper River are based in two towns. One of them is Valdez and the other is Cordova, Alaska. And uh, again, they're, they're, and there are two types of fishing boats that are used there. One is a purse seine and that's used primarily for pink salmon, which ended up at that time and probably still does in cans for canned salmon. And also the um, um, there's, there's multiple names for each salmon. So I'm just using the local vernacular on these salmon. So there's another one called a chum salmon uh, that also ended up in can usually. And then there are silver salmons, sockeye salmons, and uh, king salmons. So um, those, the, the sockeyes and the, and the king salmon and the silver salmon uh, tend to go toward a frozen or fresh market. And um, so I did both the Prince William Sound for pinks and chums and sockeyes to a limited extent and silvers to a limited extent. And then I also gillnet fish. That's the other type of boat used is a gillnet drift gillnet fishery in um, the Copper River. And that's primarily red or sockeye salmon. Those are the same two names for the same fish. King salmon, uh, those are in the spring and early summer. That's happening right now. Um, and then uh, in the fall, there's the silver or coho salmon. Those two names for the same salmon. That starts typically the end of August in the Copper River. And salmon fishing, from what I gather, it's, it's hard work, dangerous, thrilling, 
there's a kind of um, adrenaline rush to it is you're on the boat the whole time you're facing squalls and giant waves and depends on the weather you know, the <laughs> adrenaline rush depends on the weather uh yes so uh it sometimes it's flat calm and other times it's intense so uh yes and i i guess there was something else i wanted to add to that um can't remember off, offhand and you're also in a really pristinely beautiful awe-inspiring area of the planet absolutely it was also one that was uh uh, affected by the Exxon Valdez uh, uh, oil spill. So, uh, and my understanding, I have, I was not there at that time. I was there before that. And my understanding is there's no real evidence of that oil spill, except when you get on shore in some of the islands. And then all you have to do is lift a couple of stones and there's black tar, much like Santa Barbara, the beach in Santa Barbara. When you go to the beach in Santa Barbara, you know, you walk on the beach and you come back with black feet. So uh, it's, it's under the surface. It, it's definitely affected um, the environment un, in unknown ways. And I wanted to go back to another question you had about, um, or a statement you made about, um, they do have a robust hatchery um, system in Alaska. So uh, salmon will, will, they're born and they, and they go out to sea for their adult to, and as small as tiny little fish, they'll go out to sea and then they come back in, depending on which type of salmon in varying times, they will come back to spawn and then they, in the Pacific salmon, will spawn and then die. Um, and so that's the life cycle of the salmon. The pink salmon, for example, is a two-year fish. It goes out, grows for two years, comes back about five pounds, and um, it comes back to the exact creek that it was born in. And it, we, I remember creeks filled with pink salmon that were six feet across or something and almost no water running through it. And, these, and it would be filled with salmon. And that was everywhere in the Prince William Sound. And um, so in certain bays or rivers or creeks, they built these hatcheries. And these hatcheries are a way to capture the salmon as they come back and reproduce them in a much more controlled environment and so that they can add to the fishery with big numbers of salmon. Um, and interestingly, the salmon are noticeably more stunted. So it's so uh, fascinating that just because they were born in a hatchery and released as small fish, and then they go out to sea and then come back as adult fish to spawn, that they're, they're actually different fish. They're not mm -hmm. the same as a wild salmon. They are wild salmon, but they're not it's not the same it's not the same animal as one that's um hatched and naturally uh, uh i guess hatched and whatever out of a creek right whatever that activity hatchery. right yeah, the so nervous something system about the, something about the nervous system or the development interesting but it has added some significantly to the fishery so a lot of wild alaskan salmon less so on the other species, mostly on pink salmon. Uh, for whatever reasons, the other salmon don't perform as well in a hatchery environment. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's the only, there, there's, to my knowledge, I don't think there's any aquaculture in Alaska. I think they outlawed it in the state because of the wild fishery. It's so protected in that sense. Um, I know British Columbia has some uh, aquaculture, which is basically salmon raised in pens. So all the North Atlantic's, all the Norwegian salmon, the Chilean salmon, the, you know, it, all, all the Scottish salmon, Irish salmon, that, that's all coming from uh, pen raised. So salmon. there's an increasing concern and I wanna continue forward with your story, but just as it comes up now, there's an increasing concern like, is this the best fish? Is it the most nutritious? Is it farm raised? Is it pen raised? Should I not eat it? Is it bad for me? Um, is pen-raised fish as nutritious? Is it, um, you know, a viable uh, building block for health and nutrition? Should we I, I only think, buy one type? Should we omit others? I mean, basically, what's happening in the in the seafood industry is what happened on, with land-based um, uh, um, agricultural animals. 
so it's basically a land-based agricultural animal domestication of of land animals um, model and applied to seafood so you know uh, so we just we domesticated pastured animals I don't even know when cows, tens of thousands chickens, or hundreds yeah. of yeah, I Who think forty thousand. I say cows, chickens, buffalo, um, sheep, and goats. Goat. They've yaks. You know, those are all domesticated animals. So dogs, cats. So they've all been domesticated for human benefit in one way or another, as piece of burden or as food or, you know, pets. I Companions. Mean, you know, yeah. So uh, there, the same is happening with fish so uh it's hard to know it's it's hard to imagine a salmon being a pet but you know it's certainly being domesticated for food and it is uh, a a very much a commercial agriculture model so feed brought in antibiotics all these things are used to confine these you know quote wild fish into a controlled environment where they can grow as quickly as possible in the short amount of time without dying from disease of overcrowded. So um, that's very much applied to shrimp. Most of the shrimp consumed right now in the world is aquaculture shrimp, um, tilapia, it's all farm raised. Most all the catfish and trout is all farm raised. Most all the salmon is farm raised. Um, and so to answer your question, I don't know if, if it's for human consumption any better or worse than wild salmon or wild caught fish but i tend to believe that wild caught fish is a healthier um healthier food depending on the water that it's in so water as we know the seas can and are being you know contaminated around the world in varying degrees with varying contaminants so um you know it's i have a motto and my motto is know your farmer. So in the same sense, uh, in, if you're talking about seafood, it's like know your fishery. So if, if you know who's doing this and how they're doing it, your chances of uh, you know, success in terms of supporting the growers and health for yourself, I go up dramatically, so. But I would add from sort of the work that I do or the communities that I'm in, I can see very high stress about food, which could be more harmful to health than ingesting beneficial nutrition. So sometimes the stress about food and the worry about it can overwhelm the uh, you know, immunity uh, towards poor health with all that anxiety. Yeah, I don't, yes, I totally agree on that. So we we want to do our we don't best. We, we don't want to do we don't our best. Get cra- we don't want to get too crazy with this stuff, right? Uh, so um, we do know that animal protein has supported human life on this planet for millennia, and our brains and everything else depend on animal um, fats, and our muscles depend on animal protein, uh, complete protein. So, um, you know, I don't believe there are any known uh, populations on the planet that have survived more than a generation on a, any kind of a vegan diet. So. I believe that personally that we as humans need animal fat and animal protein. So um, obviously because that's my belief and because I choose to eat mostly animal products, um, I also am, you know, have been in the food business for a long, long time. I tend to gravitate toward people I know producing the food and, um, and if I have access to that and I can afford that and I, and I make a commitment to that way of eating, then I will. Do I do that exclusively? Absolutely not. So, uh, you know, I, don't, I, I just don't want to get crazy about this stuff. So I, I, I do like to know who's producing my food and what the quality and how the animal was raised. And for that reason, um, I would choose wild Alaskan salmon over any other salmon anytime, any day. So um, to answer your question about salmon, and same with uh, shrimp. I would choose a Gulf shrimp or a wild Mexican caught shrimp over farm-raised shrimp. Um, and that I would choose um, uh, entirely on taste alone. So 
some people with salmon, for example, might not appreciate the taste of wild sockeye salmon. It's a pretty strong flavored fish. If you're used to eating Norwegian salmon, you're going to notice a big, big difference in the flavor. Um, I happen to, that's my introduction to salmon was wild Alaskan salmon. So for me, I have a taste for that in a, in a, in a um, very real sense. And so if I taste Norwegian salmon, I, it's, I know what it tastes like immediately. And it, it's not as interesting or complex or um, exciting to me as eating a wild caught king salmon or wild caught uh, sockeye salmon. So thank you, Joe. So let's move forward. So you're now you're in university. I believe you're studying economics, but you're still going and doing commercial fishing every summer and you move you you're drawn to move into the seafood industry or seafood business. Yes, I um, I fished in Alaska every summer during my college years, and so there, I did it for six years in a row. Um, I also did one year I I did a um, really interesting diving for herring roe on kelp, Kazunoko Kombu. It's a Japanese um, was it had a very strong. Japanese uh, sushi market. So um, that's herring roe. They go into these bays and they they spawn and they cover the entire bottom of the uh, bay with with spawn and um, eggs and it sticks to this uh, to kombu. And so divers have to go down and cut the kombu. Kombu and seaweed, kelp, yep, kombu seaweed. kelp seaweed. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, that's a fresh thing. That's like planes come in and take it off your boat and they fly it to, they probably salt it in Cordova and then fly it to Japan overnight. I have no idea how it, what happens after we cut it, but that was one season I did that. That's that very was exciting. diving and... 24 hours was one day, maybe two, where they come in, you cut the, cut the kelp as much as you can, and it's, it's really in and out. It's that fast. Um, then... Uh, uh, let's see. So then, then after that, I was really intrigued by this international trade in seafood. And a um, mentor of mine from San Francisco said, well, you might want to get some distribution experience. So I went to work in San Diego for a dis seafood distributor for a couple of years. That was, you know, really great hands-on, know your fish, fresh fish, frozen shrimp. So um, I was really, yeah, chefs and retail stores, what they use, what they buy. So that I did, and then um, got a job with a major shrimp importing comp company um, who had an office in San Francisco. So I was in the shrimp business there. They um, uh, had an office in New Jersey, um, and so I wanted another sales rep, rep there. So I chose to move to New Jersey in 1990 and was in the seafood business for eight years in New Jersey with importing, exporting, and then chose, uh, um, had a son and chose to um, make a lifestyle uh, choice to move up to Columbia County and go to work for Hawthorne Valley Farm, which is a biodynamic dairy and vegetable farm. So that was my first uh, role in the organic and natural uh, space to come and manage this store that they had. And it's basically a full line natural food store in a barn that uh, was attached to the cow barn, literally. And um, they had 50 cows. It was fully functioning biodynamic farm and K through 12 Waldo School. Some of the best yogurt I've ever eaten. Right, that's their primary dairy product is yogurt. So yep, uh, yogurt and cheese. Um, they had an organic bakery on site. Um, they, uh, they're kind of a mainstay. They've been in the, they were one of the original vendors in the Union Square Farmer's Market in New York City. So they have a very robust farmer's market uh, division the bakery, the dairy, the, the retail store, the K through 12 Waldorf school. Um, and so I was there for four years. I want to add that um, Columbia County is an area north of New York City. And this is where all of our apples come from. It's robust for apples and other fruit and berries. If anyone ever was in New York and they, as a kid, they went apple picking, they probably came to Columbia County. And then I know this was an area for pastured animals and grazing going back hundreds of years. Yeah, this is pretty much in the middle of the Hudson River Valley. 
um, between Albany and New York, um, closer to Albany. And um, actually all of Northeast, the Northeast is, um, has the most nutritious pasture land probably in, the, in, the, in, the, in North America, some of the most nutritious pasture. Part of that is because of the length of the season. So there's something about the seasonality here and the soil and the geography that has created the most nutrition of, of, of pasture land. So historically, this land has been used primarily for pasturing animals. Um, it was sheep and wool uh, 200 years ago. And you, if you're driving through um, the Northeast, you're gonna see in the woods these stone walls everywhere. And you're like, why is there a stone wall there in the middle of this forest? Well, the forest takes about 20 to 50 years to grow, um, but most of the land in the Northeast was open pasture 200 years ago, and it was all sheep and some cow dairy. It switched to cow dairy, um, and after the wool and sheep industry basically collapsed during the Industrial Revolution or after the Industrial Revolution and the, ad, um, the, um, the, you know, the coming of petroleum-based fabrics. So uh, that wool has, be, has been replaced. It's, uh, I'm happy to see that it's making a comeback um, with Merino and, but, and natural fabric, fabrics. Um, the, the plastic fabrics is, are getting, rightfully so, a pretty bad rap for microbeads and other things that are contaminating and polluting. So um, wool is coming back as a, as, a real, as a real alternative. And guess what? It's been an alternative for hundreds of years. So uh, it's worked for <laughs> centuries. Uh, we would love to see that uh, even more and more robust in the I'm, coming years. I'm just but, gonna add quickly, it's very interesting how, um, you know, there's petroleum-based clothes, which they're petroleum-based, all these knits and stretches and polyesters and everything. And now they've been sort of greenified because they're made from recycled plastic bottles. <laughs> so I didn't want to wear them when they, uh, you know, at that time. So we're, do we want to be wearing recycled plastic bottles? Um, so I think it's interesting that these petroleum fabrics are trying to find their way into a kind of green, sustainable market. Um, but wool is a traditional clothing and um, it's certainly very important in, um, in anyone who's in climbing or camping. Uh, wool, they say wool saves life. So having woolen clothes over cotton clothes um, is great for athletics and sports. And all of our original sports uniforms, or if you've ever seen those old fashioned, like, you know, 1920s bathing suits and the old uh, football jerseys, that was all wool. Wool is naturally wicking, naturally antibacterial, naturally antifungal. It's traditionally what baby, babies diapers or baby wrapper diapers uh, were made of and are in use again for conscious, uh, conscientious moms. So, Yes, um, wool was an essential part of people's life and especially in this area. Yeah, so interestingly, um, crops and animal husbandry tends to gravitate toward where they do best. So, um, and that's kind of created the commodity system in, around the world, really. So we know that apples grow perfectly in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, in the, when you get over the coastal range and get into that high dry desert where it's cold in the winter and really deserty hot in the summer, um, you've got the perfect climate for apples. So um, Pacific Northwest, the Washington State, Oregon State apples are, are it, you go there and you just see these apples in the desert and it's so incredible to see because it's the perfect place for them to grow. Just like grapes in California, it's the perfect place for grapes to grow. Um, so these crops will always gravitate toward that. That's why in North Dakota and Southern Canada, there's like wheat fields. Like it's just, it's, it's the perfect place for wheat to grow for whatever reason, whether it's, the, it's usually a combination of weather and soil and access to the right amount of water. And um, in, you know, the, what has been traditionally the, some of the most fertile soil on the planet 
which is the Mississippi River Valley and the whole Midwest, that was all pasture for buffalo, millions and millions and millions and hundreds of millions of buffalo. And today, it's all, um, it, because of the fertility, uh, it's hugely, like it's, it's miles and miles and miles and acres and acres of uh, soybean and corn. Um, because the, they're the perfect complementary crop for one another, and it's all about the corn. So uh, uh, you see, uh, you see the vegetables growing in California because it's dry desert, and they have these rivers, and they've also invested billions in um, in irrigation. So there, there's the the California irrigation system could be one of the most sophisticated irrigation systems on the planet ever made. Um, why? Because it's the perfect growing uh, place for vegetable crops. And so, uh, you know, all the vegetables and fruit, strawberries or whatever, you've, you've got these coastal areas, which have a particular climate, and then you move inland, and it's got another climate. And so um, the Pacific North and the, the Atlantic Northwest is grazing land, pasture land. So it's rocky, it's just not good cropland. But when you get into some areas of the state, like um, over in the Finger Lakes, past the Finger Lakes, it's very good for growing beans. So they're known for their black beans and their kidney beans. So um, there's a lot of black beans grown there. So it, it's very fascinating how uh, rice, rice is another one. It's, gr it's grown down in Arkansas and in California. They have the ability to flood these areas and some of these deltas and- like Bangladesh. Bangladesh. Like these other rice-growing regions, right. River, river delta areas that have this kind of natural flooding that has happened, um, and then they basically control the flooding and then turn it into rice. So uh, I, I just find it so fascinating how, and, and then well, what I was going to say about that uh, is that you can't compete with that outside of that growing region. Like it's too efficient for that crop to grow. And so you it, you end up it becomes the place where all of it's grown for the whole world or the whole country or the whole region and there's just no way to compete with that um now in the northeast the pasture we've had to compete like nowadays if you if you go through up to vermont and which is the the place where the most idyllic agri uh, farm old farm view sheds are like you see these farms and they're just out of a storybook. But the funny thing is you don't see any animals anywhere. It's like this perfect green grass, but you don't see any animals anywhere, but boy, do you smell them. I mean, it's horrible what you smell. And, and that's because they've, they've, they take that grass and they cut it and feed it into this feeding operation and milking operation. And it's more, efficient, I guess. Um, I, and probably is, but I've never really looked at the numbers on that. Um, but uh, it certainly isn't uh, pleasant. And if I were a Vermont farmer, I, I would think twice before I went that route. But, you know, again, I'm not a farmer, so I can't criticize. If they're able to sit, keep their family farm afloat and it's working for them, then, you know, uh, no harm, no foul. Except for the foul smell, if I were a neighbor there, it wouldn't be all that pleasant. Um, I do want to revisit something that you said. You talked about this kind of rocky terrain that's traditionally been used for pasture. There's a, a kind of a popular idea that um, that the area where cows or goats or sheep are pasturing could be put to better use by removing these animals and growing vegetables. But my understanding too is that much of our pastured animals, they're on land that crops could not be grown on or they're eating like crop debris, like corn husks and whatever's left behind and uh, turning that into animal protein. So I, this idea that X amount of acreage that could be better used for black beans is being used for um, inefficiently for cows. Could you address that? Well, again, I think that um, farming is based on, it's a business, right? And so you're not going to put cows on land that's more suitable 
for growing vegetables and making money with vegetables. It just doesn't make any sense from a business point of view. And so if you really look at the vast majority of animals on pasture, they are on, they're in places where you, you, you can't farm. It doesn't even like to grow crops on some of these places makes no sense. And these are animals that are, have evolved to find food. So they, they'll find food where there isn't any. So, but obviously farmers have to be careful because they want them on pasture land that has enough nutrition that they will grow quickly enough to become um, full sized in as short amount of time as possible. But again, uh, it depends on like here in the Northeast is, is, is pasture land, but it's not, it's not traditionally beef pasture because, or, or meat pasture, because you have to feed them in the winter time here. And so it's very um, uh, inefficient to have to cut that hay and feed it to an animal that a year later you're gonna slaughter for meat. Um, so the meat that's raised in this region tends to be quite a bit more expensive because they have to overwinter and feed them once or twice in their lifetime, um, depending on when they were born and when they're harvested. However, it's perfectly suitable for shorter lifespan animals and seasonal animals like sheep or dairy animals, which you want them to live as long as they're productive. So you can, and it makes sense to feed them in the winter. Um, and most of the, if you look at dairy, uh, the dairy industry around the world, I would say it's typically in places that if dairy tr as a traditional food source, I would call it, um, it, or in places where the climate's a little harsher and they keep and the animals are precious and they keep them alive because they're providing nutrition through the dairy and the and the butter the butter fat for the winter months so um you can afford to feed them a little more because you're getting that 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 the, the animals replant is like giving you their regenerative yeah generating human health yeah so where slaughter animals you have to you want to be in places where you don't have to ha add labor you don't have to add mechanized anything. You let them roam like that, that kind of vision of the Colorado is like in Texas, it's just land everywhere. And so you just put cows on the land and then you get cowboys out there to herd them up when, when they're ready to be herded or branded or whatever. And then they are taken from the, the um, after they've basically spent about 80% of their lives in finding their own food on these ranges, they're, they're rounded up and they're brought into um, feedlots for the last 10 to 20% of their gain in weight uh, before they're um, brought in for, uh, harvested for slaughter and for human consumption of meat. So can you explain the economics of why, okay, so I understand the economics, these animals are free ranging. So um, is it true that 100% of the cattle is grass fed or range fed until the last portion of its life, like you just said. I mean, unless it's- They're a, grain finished. So we have something called grass fed, grass finished. Mm -hmm. And then we have grain finished. Could you talk about those and the economics of those? Sure. So these animals um, evolved to eat pasture. So their predominant, like the most efficient way for these animals to grow is to be on their mother's, be with mother's milk for a certain percentage of their life, very small percentage of their life, wean from their mothers and then eating pasture. That's what these animals have evolved to do. So that's the most efficient way for an animal, for a ruminant animal to grow. A ruminant has a special stomach called a rumen, which is all about digesting pasture, um, foraged feed. So those are horses, uh, cows, uh, sheep, sheep and goats, um, buffalo, deer. Those are ruminant animals that will, that are, they're, they're, they've evolved to eat grass, let's call it. Um, so anything that varies from that is going to cost you more. So to think that you would have a small animal and then you would just put them in a feedlot and feed it. I mean, I think the only place you might see that would be Kobe. 
Kobe, Japan, where they have the Kobe, the famous Kobe beef. And I don't even know enough about Kobe beef to say if that animal has spent its entire life being fed grain or not. Um, it's highly, but it's, but that's a, that's a niche in a niche. Like that's the most expensive meat on the planet. So they massage um, the beef. And yeah. They, I, I don't they know the entire the process, animals. but when you right. see Kobe beef, it's more white than red because it's so fatty with intermuscular fat or what they call marbling. So that's a very special, like that's just a particular thing that doesn't, that's a niche in a niche. So, um, uh, when you're talking about producing um, meat for um, a, a large, large market and lots and lots of people, you kind of have to go with what's most efficient. And what's most efficient is animals out on pasture for the majority of their life because you're not adding any cost. You're just letting them do what they do, which is eat pasture and grow. So, you know, in the perfect climate for that. Uh, where you don't have to worry about it being too cold in the winter or too hot in the summer. And it just, they, they, they live, they eat, they drink water, they, they do what they do. And then because, uh, uh, because uh, I guess for economic reasons and the fact that we have all this corn and soy that we grow here, we've converted that soil in the Midwest to high energy feed. And we've done it, the economics of it are such that we can afford to feed that to these animals in the last, you know, couple of months of their life, let's say. And they can grow so quickly in that, grow enough so quickly in that short period of time toward the end of their, um, their cycle, their Adult life cycle. Or adolescence or... Yeah, it's kind of like the teenager gets a ton of sugar or carbs and just blows up and becomes like a football player. So that's basically what's happening. And, um, and I want to just clarify something here. I, from my understanding, this whole corn farming, soy farming, these are grown corn is grown for corn syrup for sugar for ethanol, for um, oil, for oil. oil, and then it's what's left behind this um, pulp that's left after the sugar's removed, after the oil's pressed out, that's what's given to the animals. Well, I imagine- Or are they given whole brand new hearty- Both. Both. Both, I mean, all the energy's in the whole corn, so. Um, and you forgot to mention, you know, all the gluten-free corn stuff. Uh, right. That's another uh, use for all the corn, um, plus uh, the massive amounts of corn tortilla chips that we eat. So uh, corn is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's in, our, it's in our diet in so many different ways. And of course, soybean, which is basically not even human edible food for the most part, um, except in rare situations like natto and tempeh and some tofu. Japanese fermented. Um, so the Asians have fermented it and made it edible through and soy sauce and things like that. So through a fermentation process, um, it's become a human edible food, but it's, it's not even an animal edible food. So, but they, it's got so much oil in it and uh, that it's, they've, they've figured out ways to um, turn it into animal and human food. So um and because it's nitrogen fixing and it's a legume, it allows, it's a perfect complementary crop for corn, which needs a lot of nitrogen. So um, if you, you can't really grow corn twice, in a, two years in a row in the same land without massive amount of chemical input. So it's cheaper and better to grow a nitrogen fixing plant in alternating years as rotation and find a market for that stuff. And so you're either gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna start seeing either more, you know, like they've done everything they can to shove soy down everybody's throat. So uh, the, the next big thing is pea protein. Why? Because pea's a legume and they'll probably use it as a complement. It's a, a nitrogen crop. fixer, I see. So, so it alternates well with corn. Yep. Anything that's, yes. So I wanted to, I want to make sure we, also oh, just to clarify. So yes. if we had left this, these pastured animals, these cows, to just graze to get to full size, 
it would take it, longer. It would take longer, yes. So the economics says, let's put them into these feeding pens, these feedlots, mm -hmm. batten them up to football player size in two months, and now they're ready. Then they're at commercial weight and fat content to be slaughtered and, and, and put into the meat industry. Meat through, it becomes meat at that point, as we know it. Um, otherwise, it's going to be very lean. If it's just a pasture, particularly where most of the pasture is happening, it's going to be very lean, kind of tough to eat uh, product. So grass, fit, grass finishing is a different thing. And so you want to be in places where there's more protein in pasture and pasture management going on. And so you'll see a lot of grass fed, grass finished beef in the Pacific Northwest where you get a lot of rain and a lot of green grass, Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. There's good pasture here, um, high quality winter feed, winter forage. Um, so uh, you can grass finish animals and they can be very fatty. However, that's a genetic thing. So um, it's been a hundred years of those genetic traits being bred out of animals so that they can perform better in feedlot environments. Huh. And so to get really high quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, it's about getting that old grass-fed, grass-finished- Heritage breeds. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of the main breeds are heritage breeds. So Hereford, Angus, um, you know, uh, Scottish Highlanders and uh, Scottish Highlander isn't a main breed. That's more of a heritage breed. But um, uh, I could say the big ones that we know of are, you know, the the Hereford and the Angus. Those those are heritage. Those are Scottish or English breeds that at one time were all about grass because they weren't feeding them corns. So um, you you those traits have left though because they were bred for the feedlot so there are breeders now who are getting those traits back into those and those breeds who have historically been pastured only and when that happens you get very very high quality um high marbled uh really 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 lovely beef that has amazing flavor but most of those animals would not make it to beef at this point because it takes a good 10 to 20 years to develop enough um, animal stock on a farm or in a region to to release those animals into the meat um, production because if they're male you want those traits so you keep them as a bull for semen if they're female you want to breed those females you don't want them to go in as meat so um, you want that you you have to build up enough breeding stock and a breeding cattle in order to have a viable, high quality, consistently high quality. And I've been involved in that since about 97. And we're still nowhere near what the, you know, the conventional uh, meat industry is in terms of breeding high quality grass fed, grass finished, which is why one might say it's not as good as the feedlot doesn't taste as good corn fed beef right um it's just not consistent the genetics aren't as consistent that said it's not as consistent in the conventional beef side either if you've got a, a you know they they grade it so most of the meat that gets through the right. feedlots is not high quality meat most of it's burgers and you know just poor quality cheap meat so you're you're not you're not, there's a, a small percentage of it is very high quality and that gets shipped off as prime beef for New York and Chicago, you know, so that's, that's also a reality. On so I want to, I'd like to save some time for questions, by the way. If okay. I do want to discuss something that we had talked about sharing, which is um, the cost of food. Mm -hmm. And so there is a concern. We have an extra concern. Are we going to run out of food? Why does organic cost so much more? Why is food so expensive? And, um, you know, why is it a necessary expense or why is it an unfair expense? So why do we expect that food should be cheap or why are we, um, you know, buying our food based on price or looking for more affordable food? What's, what's the history of food availability and the cost attached to food? 
and also this touches on why for the economics of affordable food that the labor is always pinched. We know there's always been immigrant labor um, and uh, low paid wages to labor. So if you could just touch on the, the cost of food and how, why this developed. Uh, it's unclear to me why it developed, um, but I do know that culturally it's all about cheap, right? So we think there's a birthright. We have a birthright here in the United States and maybe North, all of North America that food should not cost anything. Um, and I, I, I mean, it was a real eye opener for me when I read a, I, I had a book that was like, I don't know, early 1900s that was all about food and health and, and like in the preface, I'm reading the introduction and they're talking about, well, of course, as we know that the best food is the cheapest food and blah, 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 blah. And then goes on to talk about food and health. And I'm like, oh my God, like, 19, this is a hundred years old or whatever it was. It was just like, that was the mantra like back then. And so um, that clearly to me seems like it's a result of the industrial revolution that was, uh, it was like a migration from the rural communities of the North America to the cities um, for new found jobs. And I believe that prior to that, most food that was consumed in the United States or in North America was subsistence. So, and some limited trading. I don't know if that's true. I've never done a study on it, but I suspect that it was true because in rural communities, most of the food is grown in subsistence ways around the world, even today. So, um, you have a few chickens, you chickens, you share whatever. a cow, you get your eggs every day, you you're get milk your milk in a cow. You're, you're like, everything's coming from your farm or your neighbor's farm. And so um, I believe at, from that point of view, it was cheap, right? It was just the family labor that went into it. So it wasn't valued in, from a monetary point of view, except for the crops that they were growing to sell and, and trade with. But um, the cost of the food didn't, wasn't really something that was on the radar. So the minute that they started, earn, people started earning wages in the cities in the industrial revolution, and realized they had no money to buy food, you know, uh, the pressure for food to be cheap from that point on has been staggering. And so what it does is it basically takes everything to the lowest common denominator. And typically it's either in the form of high level mechanization, which is very energy it's consumed, it consumes a lot of fossil fuel energy to be um, mechanized. Engineered. Giant tractors and whatever. foods. So um, you get massive volume with fossil fuels with big tractors, you know, and other equipment, farm equipment. That's one way you can get it cheaply. The other way is, which is the way it's been forever, from what I can tell, is some form of slave labor right? You know, or some kind of uh, 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 what I would call is uh, taking advantage of other people's um, hardship uh, in a way that you can pay them as little as possible to do really hard work that no one else will do. And so that's been agriculture in the world forever, right? So and it's no different here in the United States. We think that there's all these agriculture worker rights, and there are, but thanks to people like Cesar Chavez and others who've been vocal about that, and it, it definitely, it's pretty good, but it's still the lowest of the low wages. It's like food service, you know, wages. So, and they're doing hard, hard work. And so we think that that's okay because we want food to be as cheap as possible. And so, um, there's all kinds of pressure for farmers to get make make food for no money uh, to to keep the farm going, um, and that's why things like community supported agriculture have come along. That's DSAs. why the farmers markets have gone so well. Di farmers, smaller farmers, find direct to consumer relations any way they can because they can get a retail price. They'll go direct wholesale to restaurants and stores in their area. 
um, but it's so still- just to clarify, the community, the CSA is the farms are bringing the food the, directly to the consumer. The, the farmer's markets, they don't have to be go into the store shelves and reduce their earning by paying the store, the distributor, everyone in between. So whenever we can purchase our food directly from the farm, um, the farmers, the makers, the growers, they have an opportunity to earn a more meaningful income on their food. Yes. And then even if you do want to buy food from a grocery store, because it's a nice experience and can be and convenient and all that. Um, yeah, I mean, you're voting with your dollars. So uh, you're definitely getting it cheaper. You're definitely getting it. I mean, the quality can be as good, can be better. It depends on the store, it depends on the product. Um, so, and I buy food in grocery stores all the time. So it's not like some kind of a, you know, taboo to do anything like that, because it isn't. And there are many supermarkets and grocery stores and natural food stores that work very hard to source their products from, you know, really good sources. Uh, and so again, if there's a way to know your farmer, even in that environment, you know, you're probably supporting somebody real. That's a real family that has, you know, an interest often uh, multi-generational. And if you can make that connection in some way or another, and there's certainly more and more opportunities to make that connection with, with technology, um, then I encourage that because, you know, it, if the, the, the farmer wouldn't be selling it, wouldn't likely be selling it to a distributor, to Walmart or somebody like that if they were losing money. But that said, the pressure for the price to be low is very, very high. And so, you know, at that point it becomes a volume game and then it's about inputs like fertilizers and pesticides and all these things that, that make it viable at a very low price to get it to the marketplace through distributors. But um, anyway, I, you know, I, we could go on and on. Um, we absolutely I, could. I would Thank love you to so spend, much, Joe. I would love to spend uh, uh, five or 10 minutes if Laura or Mariko have any questions. Um, that, would be, that would be great. So I have some questions in the chat. Um, so um, this is for Joe. And then there's one more for me, but I'm going to start with one for Joe. Do you think there's any hope of optimism in regards to pushback against the com corruption and oppression of Monsanto affecting small farmers and more conscious farming methods? Do we have any um, optimism for small farmers? Well, and I learned something from a, a gentleman in the, um, in, the, uh, in the seafood industry a long time ago who made a lot of money trading shrimp. And one of his favorite sayings was, if you lay down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. And so um, the idea that a Monsanto or Bayer at this point who owns Monsanto exists is because farmers believe for whatever reason, they tend to be a pretty conservative group of people. So they kind of vote along conservative lines and they believe along conservative lines. And if their daddy said that it, it, this is how you do it and this is who you do it with, there's this tradition. And the tradition is you, you do it the way your daddy did it or you do it the way that, you know, your, your, feet, your, your chemical supplier tells you to do it. And they, they've, they're very sophisticated companies with teams and teams of lawyers and they have many ways that they can mess you up if you're a farmer. And they've done that as a way to basically scapegoat farmers and, and, and show the rest of the world that if you mess with us, you're going down. Now, uh, it, it, that's a very complex beast, let's call it. And it's, uh, it's, it's not an easy one to tackle. So if I'm a farmer and I'm surrounded by my, my neighbors and friends and family, that have been doing it this way forever. And if I try to do it a different way, well, my, I, I'm sticking my neck out and man, 
that's risky business. And so the incentives aren't really there for that. If there was enough incentive for farmers to make money doing it differently, guess what? These are really smart people and they would do it differently. But because our pressure for their prices is so low that the, the incentive isn't really there to take that risk. And so there are a brave few that have tried to break away and it hasn't been easy for them. But some, there are models out there like Joel Salatin and Polyface Farm. He's got new models. Um, Alan Savory is kind of breaking out with um, regenerative agriculture and there are farmers out there that are doing things that way. But to take your, your thousand acres of corn and soy and turn it into a regenerative farm or a you know, multi-species you know, um, farm in the middle of nowhere where there's no access to market that's a tough call and that's a great question. And um, I don't have an easy answer for that one. Um, could you address it as far as fair trade, like for these overseas global farmers, smaller farmers, does fair trade give them an economic benefit where they cannot uh, be crushed under the, the boot of Monsanto? Again, fair trade is also a complex thing. Um, it's a really interesting question because fair trade is about people wanting to know that when they buy this coffee or they buy this commodity of any kind, um, it, that, that the workers in that place where it was grown, which can't be grown, we don't grow coffee beans here in North America, so it's not gonna happen. We have to get our coffee from somewhere else. And that's typically the- um, The equator. Uh, yeah, the equatorial um, region, which has been exploited for centuries um, as well. And so uh, worker rights are, and lack of worker rights, I should call it, have been institutionalized since prior to slavery, I would say. Um, and as long as those countries have been exploited, the political establishment in those countries also creates the fertile um, gr ground for exploitation as well. So that's another area where it's very difficult to affect change. Fair trade is a glimmer of hope. And what fair trade does is it, it basically certifies that the producers of this product have, um, uh, they've got a minimum, um, a minimum price, which is established higher than the conventional price. So we know that the producer got a high price and it's the responsibility of the fair trade certifying organization to make sure that that trickles down into the co-op members or the community members who, um, who sold their goods to that person, to that company for that fair trade price. And so different, different fair trade organizations have different rules about what that looks like. And um, you'd wanna do a little bit of research on your fair trade organization if you're concerned about that and make sure that, and verify, you know, you could probably email the co-op <laughs> and verify what their practices are in terms of that money getting back into the community because all fair trade organizations have some form of community development where that money is supposed to be uh, helping the, the agriculture communities where those commodities are grown and supplied. I have another question here that I'll answer uh, quickly. Um, someone asked about bamboo fabric what do I think of it? And it's hard to get pure wool. Most wool yarn has some lycra or polyester in it. I've heard that bamboo is a very arduous and toxic um, process to turn these hard bamboo fibers into soft uh, fibers. So it's soaked in things. I'm, you can't quote me on this, like lye that breaks down the fibers. There has to be a lot of water. It's very water heavy so bamboo is beautiful is it more sustainable in how it's developed bamboo fabric than silk fabric i don't know but bamboo isn't an easy answer because it is a pretty caustic uh process i think to be getting wool and i believe the person who asked the question is in norway and you have such wonderful woolens there that have been creating great athletes and climbers and sailors uh, for centuries. Um, so that minimal, I think, to be, you know, getting wool that's 95% wool, 5% polyester, or, you know, 
something stretch or look at the percentage, 85-15 or 90-10, 95-5. I think those are very safe clothes, very sustainable. A well-made sweater is, you, is it's gonna be around for 200 years. Easily mm -hmm. 50, easily 80, easily 100. Um, and so that's a great, that's a great sustainable investment to make. So that's my answer on that. Um, I'd, like add, I'd like to add to that is like, I, I've noticed over the years that people are always kind of looking for the silver bullet. Um, and uh, bamboo could be one of those. I don't know anything about the bamboo fabric trade. So I don't, I can't speak to that at all. Um, I know they're making a lot of paper pulp out of it and they're making fabric out of it. Uh, and it's obviously grows like weeds wherever it grows. So as a renewable resource for paper, it seems like a pretty good idea, but making paper I hear is pretty intense chemically. Um, but um, in, in the food business, I see it over and over, especially the natural and organic food side, because everybody's looking for that sweetener that I can eat that's not going to give me diabetes. And it just doesn't exist. It's so it's kind of like um, I, I, there's the, all these healthy alternatives to what, you know, it's, it's like this, the, the, the super food, the next superfood. everybody's got the next superfood, And at the end of the day, I just don't see any evidence to support any of that. And so everything's about trade-offs, right? So what we do and what we decide to buy, there's, there's pluses and minuses. And so how we personally make those choices is really, it's a very personal choice. And just know that we vote with our dollars. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a trade, a medium of exchange. The dollar is the medium of exchange. So I make the money and then I choose to spend it on something. And what I cho choose to spend it on is a vote with that dollar. And so it's just something to be very aware of. And there's pluses and minuses to every single choice. And so we want to be healthy. So what does that look like? Well, there's, there's, there's like, uh, like there's a, the spectrum of what it means to eat healthy is so wide and vast that <laughs> you can't even decipher it. Um, at how to, how to, how to um, produce the food. It's the same spectrum. There are organic producers who are shysters. There are chemical producers who are fantastic farmers. There's organic farmers that are fantastic farmers. There's chemical farmers that just don't care and they'll throw chemicals all over the place and kill all their employees and they don't care. So it's just like, it's that same thing. I've just got to like, know your farmer. Like, what are they doing? Who are they doing it with? Who, what, you know, how are they doing it? And I feel very strongly about that. And that's been my slope. That's been, people ask me questions about this stuff all the time. And it always comes down to the same thing. And I'm just always finding myself saying the same thing. And it's know your farmer, know your producer, what's in it. And if it's important to you, buy it. If it's not important to you, think twice. Thank you, Joe. I think that's some great parting words. And uh, Joe Angelo, thank you for joining us today. You can learn more about uh, Joe um, below this video. Thank you so much for joining us here today on kikitv.life for our expert event, and I look forward to seeing more of you. Thank you. Thank you, Kiki. It's been great. Thank you so Thank much, you Joe.